0: I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our tiny
1: power. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody.
2: Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World, where today I will be breaking down the life of Elizabeth II, the recently deceased Queen of England, And Queen Elizabeth II is the most different character I will have covered. She conquered no lands, started no businesses, invented nothing new, climbed no ladders, created no art. She's the only subject of how to take over the world who reminds me of my grandma. And if her accomplishments are so different from the other people that we've studied on this show, why talk about her? For me, it's because I'd like to sort out her legacy in my own mind. I like to cast a wide net on social media. I like to see what everyone is saying. And within hours of her death, there were those on the far left who were singing Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. According to them, Elizabeth II was the leader of a brutal empire that exploited and murdered across the entire world on every continent. And then there were those on the far right who also didn't have good things to say about her, but this time because she had overseen the dismantling of the British Empire. She had brought to an end this glorious thing that had, you know, the sun never set on the British Empire until Elizabeth II came along, right? So I'm very intrigued by this contradiction which was she? Is she a symbol of colonization or decolonization? And in either case, did she have anything to do with it? Did she actually wield any power? If so, how? And if not, why are we paying attention to her life at all? So let's dig into the life of Elizabeth II, her impact and her legacy. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Tiny Capital. We talk a lot about building empires and leaving legacies on how to take over the world. And nothing is sadder to me than when a beautiful legacy goes to waste, like Alexander the Great's empire falling apart right after his death. You want to be more like the Rothschilds, whose financial empire lasted decades, or even better like Caesar, whose empire lasted hundreds of years. That's where Tiny Capital comes in. For over a decade, they have been partnering with founders to give them quick, straightforward exits that protect their team and culture and keep their businesses operating for the long term. When you sell to Tiny, it's incredibly fast and easy, You avoid the long back and forth and life or death negotiations. You get a fair deal that gives you cash, but also builds for the long term and protects your legacy going forward. It's a really great company that is building an empire of their own by building the right way. I'm really impressed with how they do business. Maybe it's because they're Canadian. They're just a bunch of nice guys who are really smart, but also going to treat you right and make sure everyone gets a fair deal. So if you've got a business that you would like to sell, please check them out at tiny.com and let them know that I sent you. Again, that is tiny.com. Secure your legacy. Work with the best. Check out Tiny Capital. Elizabeth was never supposed to be queen. She was born on the 21st of April, 1926, and at the time, her grandfather, King George V, was the king. Growing up, she called him Grandpa England, which I just love. Elizabeth was never supposed to be queen because her father was never supposed to be king. He was born second in line to the throne. His older brother, Edward, was first in line. And in fact, when George V died in 1936, Edward did indeed become king. But there were a couple problems with Edward. The first is that he was a notorious philanderer, a very common pastime for British royalty. He had begun an affair with an American woman named Wallace Simpson. Simpson was twice divorced and was well known as a socialite and partier, and also seen as a woman of ill repute, shall we say. This is a family-friendly show, but I think you know what I mean. Uh, She wasn't exactly a professional but um, she wasn't an amateur either. So when Edward made clear his intention to marry this woman, Wallace Simpson, the British public, press, and the royal establishment had a collective fit. Edward was a philanderer, okay. That's not very unexpected, honestly, for British royalty. It wasn't viewed as a positive thing, but it's certainly viewed as forgivable, as an adolescent phase that up-and-coming princes are allowed to work through. And there is sort of a royal script for how a young prince grows out of this adolescent phase. He marries the innocent young virgin, signifying that he has left this all behind. And Wallace Simpson was not exactly an innocent young virgin. She was also not British, let alone of royal stock. So this is not someone that anyone could see being the queen of Great Britain. The official narrative is that this is why King Edward VIII abdicated the throne. He basically stepped down as king in order to be with this woman. And, and I do think that was a big part of it. But I do think there is another reason. Edward had very right-wing views. He was at least sympathetic to fascism, and it's probably not wrong to describe him as an outright fascist. And he wasn't just passively fascist. He made an early indication in his reign that he intended to be an active and potentially politically involved king. Now, let me just say that this is 1936, right? And fascism was not the fringe view that it is today. In the 1930s, many normal Brits and Americans and people from all over the world would describe themselves as fascist. It wasn't exactly a mainstream view, but it didn't make you a pariah in polite society the way it does today. Nevertheless, like I said, not mainstream and certainly not with the intelligentsia in England and not with the press. And so this is 1936, the year that Hitler reoccupies the Rhineland and hosts the Summer Olympics in Berlin. It's hugely embarrassing, to the British intelligentsia, who are mostly, you know, communist sympathetic at the time, um, some might say they still are, to have a fascist king at this moment in 1936. Well, just six months after his ascension to the throne, a man jumped out of a crowd with a loaded pistol and attempted to assassinate Edward. The would-be assassin was subdued by bystanders and the plot failed. The would-be assassin was soon revealed to be an MI5 informant. MI5 is the British Domestic Intelligence Service, basically the British FBI. And it should be noted that the man only served 12 months in jail for an attempted assassination of the king. Now, of course, at the time, MI5 claimed that this was just happenstance, that he was supposedly a spy working with the Italians, and that this man was a double agent and reporting all his findings to MI5, but he had gone rogue all of a sudden and not reported this assassination request from the Italians, he hadn't reported it to MI5. Well, just two years ago in 2020, new documents were released that demonstrated that he had told MI5 all about the assassination plot multiple times, and they had done absolutely nothing about it. They had completely ignored the information, even though this was a known informant to them who they worked with frequently. This doesn't look good. And historian Alexander Larman said about this new information in 2020, quote, It is entirely possible that MI5 were aware of the planned attempt and were happy to let him assassinate Edward, thereby removing an internationally embarrassing monarch with believed Nazi sympathies from the throne. And I don't think it's a very far jump from there to say that MI5 may have orchestrated the attempt themselves. I mean, it doesn't really make sense to me why the Italians would want to assassinate King Edward when, at the time, Mussolini was the leader of... The Italian government; it it was a fascist country at the time, so why would they want to kill uh, the most notable, you know, fascist sympathetic monarch in the world? And it doesn't make sense to me. But so whatever. The, the the information indicates that the British security services were at least turning a blind eye and may have actively been orchestrating an attempted assassination of the king. So look, Edward stated that the reason he abdicated was because of Wallace Simpson. There really were negotiations to see if he could remain king and marry her. There are good reasons to believe that it was indeed the reason he abdicated as king. But when you have good reason to believe that your own intelligence service might be trying to assassinate you or at least might be allowing it to happen, that might be a catalyst to want to step down as king. So I do think there is that element of as well. But for whatever reason, uh, with Edward abdicating, his younger brother, Albert, who was Elizabeth's father, comes to the throne. This happens when she is 10 years old. Now, Elizabeth's childhood had in many ways been idyllic. She hadn't grown up in a palace. She did grow up in a mansion. She was still royalty, but not in an actual palace. She loved the outdoors and she was able to spend considerable time outdoors. So she kind of had this sweet spot where she was royalty. So she had all the perks and privileges of being royalty, but without many of the burdens that would be placed on some who were actually expected to rule. As royalty, she was educated at home under the supervision of her governess and surrounded by accomplished tutors. And she was educated well, though her mother, who was sort of an old school Scottish aristocrat, tended to emphasize history, literature and music and tried to dissuade education in what she considered to be the more masculine subjects like math and science. And throughout her life, occasionally, Elizabeth would demonstrate sometimes surprising ignorance of uh, some of these more hard science subjects. She was a precocious girl and well-liked. She was always her grandfather's favorite and even Winston Churchill was very impressed by the young girl when he met her when she was very young. So she's living this idyllic carefree childhood out of the public eye, having a great time outdoors, loving nature, but her carefree existence comes to an end when her uncle steps down. With only a younger sister and no brothers, she was now the presumptive heir to the throne. There's a famous exchange where she's talking to her sister, Margaret, and Margaret says, you're gonna be the queen now. And Elizabeth says one day and Margaret says, poor you. And I don't think this was sour grapes. I think they viewed the queenship as a genuine burden. Elizabeth's first public duty came in 1940 when she was 14 years old. This was during the blitz when Germany was bombing London. She gave this radio broadcast to comfort children across England. And you can listen to a snippet here to hear what she sounded like as a 14 year old, trying to comfort other children throughout great Britain.
0: In wishing you all good evening, I feel that I am speaking to friends and companions who have shared with my sister and myself many a happy children's hour. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister, Margaret Rose, and I feel so much for you as we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. We are trying to do all we can to help our gallant sailors, soldiers and airmen. And we are trying too, to bear our own share of the danger and sadness of war. We know, every one of us, that in the end all will be well. For God will care for us and give us victory and peace." In
2: 1945, as the war had progressed and was coming closer to drawing to a close, she joined the military as a driver. And this was definitely a publicity stunt, but it was also an important display that the royal family was in it together with the British public. Later in 1945, on May 8th, the Allied powers celebrated Victory Day. Nazi Germany had officially been defeated and the people of England flocked to the streets en masse to celebrate. Elizabeth and her sister, Margaret, were allowed to sneak out and join the celebrations on the streets with their caps pulled low to avoid recognition. She later said, quote, I remember lines of unknown people linking arms and walking down Whitehall. All of us just swept along on a tide of happiness and relief. I think it was one of the most memorable nights of my life. It was one of the most memorable moments of her life because it was one of the few moments when she could actually feel a part of the public, a part of a crowd that she could feel unknown. And as I have studied and read more about the life of Elizabeth, I've kind of been struck by this sense of isolation, like she was a caged animal. And obviously she was in one of the most beautiful cages you can imagine, but caged nonetheless. And I think her recollection of VE Day demonstrates that. And it was so memorable to her because it was the only day that she would have like that in her life, which is pretty remarkable to me. I don't think Elizabeth was naive to what she was sacrificing when she signed up to be queen, but she believed strongly in duty. And she thought this sort of royal isolation was a part of the job. And so, you know, she, uh, in the classic English fashion, stiff upper lip, she bore it, she, uh, and she, she bore it. Well, she, she never complained about it, but it's something that you can kind of see throughout her life around this time. She begins getting serious with a foreign Royal and distant cousin named Philip. They had met when she was 13. And like I said, he was foreign. And so, uh, he was out of the country, but they wrote many letters to one another over the years and now the romance began in earnest. Well, the firm was not happy about this romance, uh, was not happy about Philip, and the firm is the professional bureaucracy around the royal family. It's sometimes also called the royal institution or the institution. They were not happy with this relationship because it was a lopsided match in many ways, in terms of money, titles, and prestige. Philip was a foreigner with no property, limited financial means, and to boot, He was German, which was not the best thing you could be in the wake of World War II. But Elizabeth was young and in love and didn't particularly care about the opinions of the firm. So in July of 1947, when Princess Elizabeth was 21 years old, the two are engaged. They are married in November of that year. The wedding was beautiful and elegant, but humble, maybe a little more subdued than usual by the standards of British royalty because post-war Britain was still suffering the consequences of the war rationing was still in effect and it would have been unseemly to have had too extravagant of a wedding in that environment. But the wedding was really well done. It really managed to kind of split the middle. Uh, it avoided a lot of criticism and not only avoided criticism, but was a really a popular success. Provided some much needed escapism for the British public in what was an extremely difficult economic environment. And it managed to provide them that without seeming out of touch or too opulent. A little under a year after their marriage, Elizabeth gave birth to their first child, Charles, and two years later, she gave birth to their second child, Anne. But soon after this, some marital problems began with Philip. He tried to involve himself more in royal business. You know, his primary role is at this time, the queen's consort. In other words, he was a stay at home husband, and that was a little emasculating, especially in the 1950s. So he wanted to be treated more as a contributor, perhaps an advisor to the queen to sit in her meetings and councils, to offer his advice and to take on some more royal duties. But this attempt was rebuffed by Queen Elizabeth, who felt that the burden of the crown was hers alone to bear. And this caused tension early in their marriage. Though how much tension is a matter of debate. Philip always said that it wasn't that big of a deal. Others said that it was. Philip did get some reprieve when he was assigned to active duty with the Royal Navy. At least he could do some good by being a model of public service. And in addition, in the Navy, he's sort of outside the realm of the Royals. He's not being constantly reminded of his subordinate relationship to his wife. So he's stationed in Malta and then sails around from there. He's got few responsibilities and a lot of free time. So what does he do? Well, that favorite pastime of British Royals since time immemorial, he gets around to checking in with the local women, seeing what they're doing. Eventually, Philip's philandering becomes public knowledge Elizabeth and the kids visit him for months at a time in Malta to kind of, you know, try and keep a lid on this. But ultimately, he is brought home to save the royal family and Elizabeth in particular from further embarrassment. Philip and Elizabeth were given the chance to present unity in their relationship when they were sent on a royal visit to Africa in February of 1952. There were a few stated reasons for going to Africa, including recreation, sightseeing, uh, safaris, but also because there had been some unrest in Kenya. So it was kind of a dual vacation slash political visit, but only six days after arriving, they received news that Elizabeth's father, King George had passed away. It's actually Prince Philip who found out first from a local newspaper and he breaks the news to Elizabeth. She was stoic, but obviously saddened. No one saw her shed a tear, which was kind of her MO again. She kind of represented that very British stiff upper lip. They cut the trip short and she comes back to England as soon as possible, where she immediately starts acting in the capacity of queen. Now, there's a reason that I brought up her uncle's attempted assassination and subsequent resignation, and that's to show the extent to which British monarchs had been removed from power. In fact, I would say they were sort of hermetically sealed off from power. There were strong safeguards in place to make sure that they didn't exercise anything like actual power or sovereignty. And that is still true. And so that would kind of be a theme of Elizabeth's reign, I think. The fact that she didn't truly rule in any real sense of that word. The decline of the British monarchy basically began with Charles I and the English Civil War back in 1642. It then took another big hit with something called the Glorious Revolution. And finally, it was really Elizabeth's father or grandfather who was the first purely symbolic King of England, depending on who you ask. But that was really when the transition was happening from what you might call a mostly ceremonial, mostly symbolic King to an entirely ceremonial or symbolic King. So that is to say whatever impact Elizabeth wanted to make She would have to do it largely through symbols, pageantry, and tradition, the tools that were available to her. So her coronation was an extremely important event. The first thing she had to do was decide her name. Monarchs typically choose a name to rule under when they ascend to the throne. So for example, her father was named Albert, but ruled as King George VI. In part, I think he did this to stress the continuity with his father, King George V, especially after the tumultuous and short reign of his brother. So, the option was there for her to take a new name, but Elizabeth decides to take her own name. And this could be seen as grandiose since the first Queen Elizabeth was one of the most powerful and important British monarchs ever. But I don't think it came across that way and I don't think she intended it that way. When her secretary asked what name she would rule under, she replied, quote, my own, of course, what else? And I think that's how she meant it. I think what it actually communicated was a lack of pretension, a sort of groundedness that I'm gonna rule under my own name. Elizabeth is my name and I'm still Elizabeth. I'm still Jenny from the block. She also needed to decide on her last name. She belonged to house Windsor and her husband belonged to house Mountbatten. Now there was some precedent for a queen taking her husband's name. Her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, married a German prince, Albert, who was of house Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. And their children were of house Saxe-Coburg Gotha, which changed to Windsor in World War I because it sounded too German while they were fighting a war with Germany. So the question was, would her children stay House Windsor uh, or would she be like Queen Victoria and become House Mountbatten? And she decided that they would stay House Windsor. Philip considered this another slight and he complained, quote, I'm the only man in the country not allowed to give his name to his own children. But Elizabeth is someone for whom history was always very important. House Windsor sounded British. In people's minds, it was the royal house of Great Britain. It carried a lot of positive connotations because of Elizabeth's father and grandfather, and she wasn't willing to throw that all away. So she decided to upset her husband instead of the British public and uh, and go forward with her name. Elizabeth's coronation ceremony was a huge deal. Hundreds of thousands of people lined the route to Westminster Abbey, and more than 20 million people watched the ceremony on television. The actual coronation ceremony itself was not televised, as it was considered a religious ceremony and therefore too sacred to be shown on television, but everything else around the procession and all the pomp and circumstance was shown. And what's remarkable to me is how grounded the ceremony was in tradition. This is someone for whom, you know, the monarchy was changing and the British Empire was ending, the British Commonwealth was changing, the world was changing, and it would have been easy for her to change the ceremony a little bit and maybe downplay it. A little bit tone it tone it down just a tiny bit Um, but she rode in a gilded coach which was more than 200 years old she carried all the regalia of the monarch including the crown the scepter and the orb she used the stone of scone which was the stone that was taken from scotland and like a, a sign of you know england's superiority over and subjection of scotland and i think you know obviously she was not the type of person to try and lord her power over others but For her, I think it was just very important to be rooted in tradition. So she wanted to carry out all the traditional ceremony of becoming a monarch of the United Kingdom. And so on the 2nd of June, 1952, she was asked, Do you solemnly promise and swear to govern the people of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? And she replied, I solemnly promise so to do. And with that, at the age of only 27... Elizabeth became Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas, queen, defender of the faith. The first thing she does is go on a tour of the Commonwealth. And this is her chance to establish what her vision would be for the United Kingdom and for the monarchy. Now at this time, decolonization was in full swing. The UK was broke following World War II and reliant on the United States, which was vehemently opposed to colonialism. And I think the British public was also tired of colonialism or at least certainly not willing to fight for its continued existence in the face of American opposition. So Elizabeth goes out and makes the case for a new kind of Commonwealth, one that was to quote her, an entirely new conception built on the highest qualities of the spirit of man, friendship, loyalty, and the desire for freedom and peace. In other words, it was to be almost a fraternity of nations. Now, as I pointed out, this was already the direction things were headed. She could have come out as a committed imperialist and tried to lead some sort of public outcry to maintain their few remaining imperial possessions or maybe even, I guess, claw back those that had been lost. But it's difficult to imagine that that would have done anything to stop the inevitable. And all she would have done in the process, I think, is discredit the British monarchy and sort of highlight its weakness. (laughs) You know, she'd come out and, uh, and said, you know, we're vehemently opposed to decolonization. And then the United Kingdom, Great Britain decolonizes anyway, but sort of discredits their, their power and prestige. So I think she's doing a smart thing by going around and essentially cheering as Britain's overseas territories slowly spin out of British orbit and into new independent nations. This is especially true in Africa, where she had very friendly relations with black natives at a time when the minority white governments were still trying to maintain control. And so her going around and kind of hobnobbing with some of these black leaders of these countries was seen by many white Africans as a betrayal, but was popular on TV back in Britain and with newspapers, and of course, with most black Africans in the British territories. Of course, the queen still attended to matters of state during this time. She met with other heads of state. She met with every US president from Truman until Biden, which is pretty remarkable to think about, uh, except for Lyndon B. Johnson, I believe. She didn't meet with him, but she met with all the other presidents. She answered letters, cut ribbons, spoke at charities, fundraisers, grand openings, and, and all that sort of thing. Her reputation in performing all of these functions was that she worked very hard and very quickly. She was known as a very fast reader and dictator, meaning dictating letters, and it was no small task for her secretaries and assistants to be able to keep up with her. So she was a a very bright woman and a very effective worker. I think, you know, she would have been a competent leader whether she had been born queen or not. Over the years, Queen Elizabeth II had two more children and family becomes a very important theme of her reign. In some ways, she replaced the idea of a singular important monarch with the idea of the royal family, an ideal, loving family that was supposed to showcase the best elements of British culture and British values. I think of it almost as like a living, walking museum to Britishness, to Englishness, really. The queen's husband, Philip, was instrumental in this process. He was one of the people pushing for the royal family to open up somewhat and let the public in. They allowed documentary crews to come in and film the everyday life of the royal family. Some complained that this removed the mystique of the queen, which it probably did, but it also made the royal family seem more relatable. They were perhaps less revered, but more loved after this change in approach. You can see Elizabeth herself sort of outlining this approach in 1957 during the queen's address when she sets the stage for this new kind of monarchy.
1: It's inevitable that I should seem a rather remote figure to many of you, a successor to the kings and queens of history, someone whose face may be familiar in newspapers and films, but who never really touches your personal lives. But now, at least for a few minutes, I welcome you to the peace of my own home. In the old days, the monarch led his soldiers on the battlefield and his leadership at all times was close and personal. Today things are very different. I cannot lead you into battle. I do not give you laws or administer justice. But I can do something else. I can give you my heart and my devotion to these old islands and to all the peoples of our brotherhood of nations.
2: The pinnacle of this rosy picture of the royal family occurred in 1981 when her son, Charles, married Princess Diana. Diana was an icon, very beloved, and their wedding was a beautiful, opulent affair, highlighting familial and national unity while projecting beauty and grandeur. The public was enthralled by the wedding and further enthralled when in the 1980s Diana gave birth to Princes William and Harry. So the 1980s were, generally speaking, a decade of success and public adoration for the royal family, but unfortunately, it was not to last. 1992 was described by Elizabeth as an Annis horribilis, a disastrous year. Princess Diana's marriage with Prince Charles broke up in that year, and she published a tell-all memoir that revealed an unflattering picture of the royal family. Both Diana and Charles had affairs exposed very publicly that year. Her other son, Prince Andrew, also previously announced his intention to separate from his wife and Elizabeth's daughter, Princess Anne, separated from her husband. So, I mean, what are the chances of that? In a single year, three of your four children separate from their spouse. And then to add to it, there's a fire at Queen Elizabeth's favorite castle, Windsor Castle. So, yeah, 1992. What a year. I remember when I got broken up with and fired within 24 hours and I thought my life was bad. That doesn't even compare to 1992 for Queen Elizabeth. Now, all these divorces amongst her children weren't finalized until 1996, and it was a minor scandal when she, the Queen, approved these divorces, since you know she's the head of the Church of England, and the Church of England was officially opposed to divorces in these circumstances. But it wasn't that big of a deal; it wasn't that big of a scandal when she did it. What was a big scandal was in 1997 when Princess Diana died in a in a car crash. Queen's reaction to Diana's death became a scandal. It was very controversial because at first, she seemed not to react. She didn't fly the flags at half-staff, she doesn't issue a statement, doesn't leave her summer home at Balmoral, doesn't really do anything. And the public is outraged over this. Diana, despite her many issues, and she did have some issues, uh, but she was very beloved. She was fashionable, she was good looking, uh, she was relatable. And so it felt like a snub that the queen wouldn't even really acknowledge her death wouldn't show any emotion, wouldn't show that she was affected by it at all. And I think it probably was a snub. One of the primary motivators in Elizabeth's life was duty. And to her, it had seemed like Diana shirked her duty. And I don't know that that's totally fair, but I also don't know that it's Elizabeth's fault. I think that's really just a generational gap in terms of how they approached the burdens and mental health issues that came with royal responsibilities and being a part of the royal family. But so in Elizabeth's mind, Diana had abandoned her royal responsibilities and given up on her marriage so I think it's safe to say that at this point in their life and you know she's she has left Elizabeth's son of course Charles was not blameless in this to say the least but I don't know it's her son right so um, so anyway Queen Elizabeth probably meant it as a little bit of a snub she probably didn't particularly want uh, to get involved in all this but It's going over horribly. The public is kind of outraged. Tony Blair, the prime minister at the time, actually intervenes. He goes to the queen and tells her, you need to get back to London and do something. So Queen Elizabeth shows up in London and addresses the nation in a speech. And here's a part of what she had to say about Princess Diana.
3: So what I say to you now, as your queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart... First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. This week at Balmoral, We have all been trying to help William and Harry come to terms with the devastating loss that they and the rest of us have suffered. No one who knew Diana will ever forget her.
2: And this speech is very effective. It wins over the public magnificently. And I do think it was heartfelt. Obviously, when you're the queen, everything is scripted. Everything is a show, but that doesn't mean that it's not also heartfelt. I mean, I actually tend to think that if everything you do is public, that you probably get used to acting less. (laughs) You kind of just have to merge your public and your private self. And so I do think she had complicated feelings about the death of Diana and, um, either way she navigated it well in the end, she kind of stumbled at the front, but she ended up navigating this crisis capably. The concern that she showed for her grandsons previewed her next act as queen, which would essentially be national grandmother. A lot of the media focus uh, over the next decade or two switched to her grandsons, William and Harry, as people started to look forward to the future of the royal family. Their military service and their studies at elite universities were great fodder for the newspapers. From there, the height of Elizabeth's popularity probably came in 2012, That was a big royal celebration of the 60th year of Elizabeth's reign. It was called the Diamond Jubilee. The Olympics also took place in London that year, and there was a great skit where James Bond comes and escorts the Queen to the Olympics. When he first walks into her office, she leaves him waiting for a minute to demonstrate who's really in charge here. You might be James Bond, you might be the coolest man in the world, but you still report to the Queen. It was really symbolic of how the Queen herself was beloved and seen as tough and sturdy despite her diminutive stature and advanced age. Well, uh, since 2012, it hasn't been all roses for the royal family. Her son Andrew was implicated in the sex trafficking ring of Jeffrey Epstein. Meghan Markle, who was her son Harry's wife, maintained that she was mistreated by the royal family. Her son William married a commoner, Kate, although to be honest, that wasn't much of a controversy outside of the firm. But through all these controversies, Queen Elizabeth, in her old age, has managed to stay above the fray, a symbol of unflagging duty, stability, loyalty, a symbol, really, of Great Britain itself. Her husband died in 2021 of old age at the age of 99, and the Queen reportedly said that it, quote, left a huge void in her life. I know that I talked about his indiscretions as a young man and his dust-ups in the royal family, but... Uh, I don't want to give the wrong impression because they really did develop a happy marriage and were good companions for one another uh, throughout their lives. I mean, you know, obviously at the beginning, those problems were what they were, but I still think they loved each other throughout that. And that love only grew um, and their partnership grew over the decades. She, of course, followed him to the grave a little more than a year later, also dying of old age. So... What are we to make of this woman, of Queen Elizabeth II, what is her legacy? She was someone who was intensely committed to tradition, loyalty, and duty. She was clever and tough, a hard worker, and a very private person, perhaps bordering on remote or emotionally distant. She is sort of an odd character in terms of where she falls in history. Nominally, she was the ruler of one of the most powerful nations on earth. And yet, in reality, she was a prisoner of it, with no say over its actions or policies. People who complain about colonialism or the cost of the royals, I mean, she had nothing to do with that, and the cost is negligible. And even, you know, people on the other side who say they bring in all this tax revenue through tourism, that's also probably negligible. In all honesty, all the policy and government stuff is a wash. Britain's royal family, they're not political actors, and Queen Elizabeth II certainly wasn't one. I think more than anything, Queen Elizabeth II represents a tether to the past, this link between the Britain of old and the Britain of today. You know, if you trace it back far enough, her rule supposedly rests on her descent from Odin, right? Uh, That's where her divine right of kings comes from. And I think that is embarrassing for those who would like to move past Britain's, I guess, sort of parochial past, those who are embarrassed of um, its colonial past or even just its white past, and would like to conceive of Great Britain purely as a modern multicultural enterprise. She is a reminder of Britain as a unique place in the world, with a unique history and legacy, with all that comes with that, good and bad, all the glory, all the warts. And I do think that under a different ruler, that tether to history might have been severed. I think that the strength of her character will resonate through the institution of the British monarchy for a long time, because she strengthened that institution a lot through her popularity and through her engagement with the public. So I think that's a big part of her legacy. The other thing is I found this an interesting study of power. I came into this kind of wondering, you know, is she responsible for colonialism? Is she responsible for decolonization? And I guess along with that went, how much power did she really have and who really holds power in Great Britain? I just kind of had this curiosity about whether it would be possible for some enterprising young king to actually seize power in some circumstance as a fun thought exercise, as a way of sort of gauging, okay, is there a circumstance under which she could have done more? So I was on the lookout, and after studying the life of Elizabeth II, I think I conclude that the United Kingdom is a nation that is controlled not by a king, not by parliament, but by three or four newspapers. Seemingly, everything Elizabeth II did in her life was to placate the media— To the extent that she was judged successful it was because she pleased the media in London and to the extent that she failed it was because she failed to please them and so in this way it's they are like the monarchs who rule the monarch and I just thought that was interesting we've got a word for monarchy a word for democracy but what do you call rule by newspapers someone more clever than me is gonna have to coin a word for that Uh, but I think that's what England is right now and lastly I would just like to say that Queen Elizabeth II was a remarkable woman with uncommon strength of character and commitment to her ideals. She really was tireless. And, you know, what's interesting to me is when you think about that episode where initially she doesn't issue a statement at Princess Diana's death, it's remarkable because it's the one time in her life that she isn't rock solid and totally dependable. And I think that one little slip up highlights the extent to which she didn't have slip ups. She really was one of the most consistent people that I've ever studied or, or read about. I think consistency is a huge theme of her rule and reign. So for her steadiness, for her good humor, for her commitment to tradition, for her kindness, for her general decency, she will long be remembered. She was representative, I think, of many of the best qualities of the English people. So I, I came away from studying this episode quite impressed by Queen Elizabeth II. May she rest in peace. Okay, special shout out, big thank you to Elizabeth Graver, who did a lot of the research for this episode. Thank you, Lizzie. And until next time, thank you for tuning in to How to Take Over the World.